In the underworld's intersection of mobsters and spies, there are four kinds of beings. Mobsters, spies, spying mobsters, and mobster spies. They all sound scary. But distinguishing them is what helps to clarify the threat they each pose. Now, some intelligence pros are likely pulling their hair out that I'm using these super simple pop culture terms, mobster and spy, and then inventing two new ones by smashing them together. There may be frustration and even contempt that I'm not making distinctions based on approved espionage semantics like agent versus agent in place versus asset, etc. But guess what? First, there are mobsters in this history, and some of them became spies. For primal reasons, but under super complex historical context. We need simple terms to grasp this world, especially since it formed and grew in the dark for over a century without a proper historical telling. And is now threatening the fabric of the free world. Because the underworld and its creatures have escalated the stakes to this degree, I've been on social media writing about all four mobster and spy beings. It was my reaction to an overwhelming feeling of helplessness when every alarm bell needed to be rung, and instead, the discourse was flooded with nonsense, distractions, and crap pumped in there often by the underworld's creatures themselves. I wrote my ass off, for free, often while my hair was on fire. And up until now, I did so under a pseudonym. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'll share why. Social media is a cesspool. I had a writing career to protect. And I was unclear in the beginning how to navigate Twitter, expose this world, and not harm that career. I'm not a baby writer by any means, but vulnerable nonetheless. So some assumed that I used the pseudonym because I'm afraid of the mobsters I write about. Truthfully, and perhaps naively, I am not. Even my friends who know my real name and know what happens in my industry, when an artist says controversial things that angers someone light years more powerful. Even they worried more about my safety with the mobsters. But that's just more Hollywood. Today's mobsters don't frighten me. They are transactional, self-protective, and pretty stupid. I'm not in business with them. And if the history and context I'm providing bothers them, any harm brought to me would only affirm the validity of what I'm exposing. They're stupid, but not that dumb. So that's the mobsters. Then there are the spies. Eh, mostly nerds at desks these days. Even the foreign ones. I've had some nasty hacks and weird online trolls these past years. When it's happening, there's definitely a hot moment of adrenaline. But by the time that passes, they've all proven harmless. Costly, in terms of new laptops. But harmless. Spying mobsters, as in criminals within a syndicate who start working with authorities in order to get out of their own legal peril, the Justice Department calls them confidential informants. Their fellow gangsters call them rats. For the historical ones in this series, they have even been called patriots. In fact, Because of the long-dead characters in this episode and what they accomplished together, working with our intelligence agencies, the stupid mobsters of today, who have served as confidential informants, often cast themselves as patriots when selling their stories to Hollywood, print media, or cable news hosts. Rest assured, they know this specific history which we're about to dive into, of their long-dead predecessors. And the folks who buy that patriot garbage from mobster CIs are even bigger idiots. 
especially the studio executives and cable news hosts. I've watched them do it in both groups. It's quite a sight to behold. Because spying mobsters who serve as confidential informants are indeed rats, gutter creatures of the underworld, providing something helpful for law enforcement out of self-preservation. I have issues with the whole process of turning syndicate criminals into confidential informants. Don't get me started. So, spying mobsters who help gather information to rat on other bigger mobsters in order to stay out of prison? No. They don't worry me in the least. Then, there are the mobster spies. They scare the shit out of me. From the ones in the former Soviet bloc, trained by the KGB or other Soviet-connected intelligence services, who are still alive and continuing to entwine themselves with our nation's politics and business. To the GID-trained Saudis with their bonesaw-loving royals. To whatever the hell that chimera is out of MSS and the triad. The list is not short. They're in every corner of the underworld, churning the dark money, sharpening their knives on the remains of whoever gets in their way. These are amoral men and women, nihilists, who profit profoundly off human misery and are given the tools, training, and assistance of a nation-state's intelligence service. I can't think of anything more dangerous. When it comes to the underworld's intersection of organized crime and intelligence, mobster spies are a different kind of creature altogether. Today, some of these creatures, men primarily, were helped by the intelligence agency behind them to amass vast sums of wealth and masquerade as businessmen in one sector or another. I call them mobligarchs. Were they a foreign national, perhaps born behind the Iron Curtain when it was still visible, they seek venues in the Western world, a NATO member, to do business and store their money. When the West lets them in, they go for our favorites, finance, entertainment, sports, media, real estate. All the places are original gangsters planted with their own seeds. Where we're wise enough of their true nature to stop them from getting visas or sanction their businesses, they're relegated to the territory where whatever regime is sponsoring them has an overt foothold of control, like the influence Russia has over Iran or Syria. These mobligarchs might want to buy a professional soccer team in a Western nation, but they're forced to stick with whatever they muscled out of the autocrat in their nation of origin. Aluminum, gas, hotels, construction, beauty pageants. We rarely see them for what they are or stop them in time. Just in this century alone, mobster spies have used their profits from human drug and arms trafficking to fund everything from terrorism to Silicon Valley. Those platforms on your phone that have helped radicalize huge swaths of our population? Yeah, mobster spy money, mobligarchs funded that. And their knuckle-dragging grunts, their street soldiers and lieutenants, also born out of a foreign intelligence service and maybe a stripper in Budapest, are used for all types of horrors, like throwing doctors off rooftops and slipping polonium in a dissident's tea. And they would not be nearly as dangerous. They might not even exist to terrify me in my momentary leaps of self-indulgent imagination. If it weren't for what their agency predecessors, the plain old spies, learned about us, in the Second World War. In early 1942, a little over two months after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, things weren't going well for us in the war effort. 
on February 23rd, the day George Washington's birthday was celebrated. President Franklin D. Roosevelt admitted as much in his fireside chat. We have most certainly suffered losses from Hitler's U-boats in the Atlantic, as well as from the Japanese in the Pacific, and we shall suffer more of them before the turn of the tide. We were being attacked at sea and along our shores. The Axis powers were targeting the Allied fleet. Among the ships sunk in those two short months, between Pearl Harbor and Washington's birthday, were a U.S. naval destroyer, a merchant steamer, a tanker, and several Allied vessels. And although we had been taking down Hitler's spy rings in the U.S., the Duquesne, our ports and cities were still crawling with the enemy. On top of this, at home, we were flooded with fascist propaganda targeting our German and Italian immigrant communities. As Roosevelt would note in that very fireside, it was a scope and scale of warfare the United States had never faced before. He asked Americans to get out their world maps, and he walked everyone through what we were up against. This war is a new kind of war. It is different from all other wars of the past, not only in its methods and weapons, but also in its geography. It is warfare in terms of every continent, every island, every sea, every air lane in the world. That is the reason why I have asked you to take out and spread before you a map of the whole Earth and to follow me in the references which I shall make to the world-encircling battle lines of this war. Many questions will I fear remain unanswered tonight, but I know you will realize that I cannot cover everything in one short report to the people. The broad oceans which have been heralded in the past as our protection from attack have become endless battlefields on which we are constantly being challenged by our enemies. We must all understand and face the hard fact that our job now is to fight at distances which extend all the way around the globe. There is a beauty to this speech that I had not noticed until re-listening to it in preparation for this series. FDR is fully aware that he is talking to two audiences. us the citizenry, and them, the access powers. For us, we were being invited into the war effort by the president as if he were our own personal war consigliere. Why? Because the attack on Pearl Harbor happened not to him personally or to our military and government alone. It happened to us. This is our country. And that was a terrible wound to our body. And because of it, he would ask even more of us. Sacrifices at home, in labor, home economics, and way of life conveniences to support the war effort. And sacrifices abroad, on the battlefield, with our own flesh and blood. Roosevelt tended to us in this fireside chat and all the others because keeping us informed was his foremost duty. The injuries of war were ours, not his, and the burdens of sustaining and surviving them fell on us all. But what of the other audience, the enemy? Of course Roosevelt knew they would be listening. Their military and intelligence leaders would perseverate over every syllable deconstructing his speech ad nauseum to learn whatever they could from his words, his inflections, his subtext. And learn they did. In that subtext, Roosevelt delivered a wallop, beginning with his opening salvo on the righteousness of our nation's founder, George Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. 
my fellow Americans, Washington's birthday is a most appropriate occasion for us to talk with each other about things as they are today and things as we know they shall be in the future. For eight years, General Washington and his Continental Army were faced continually with formidable odds and recurring defeats. Supplies and equipment were lacking. In a sense, every winter was a valley forge. Throughout the 13 states there existed fifth columnists and selfish men, jealous men, fearful men, who proclaimed that Washington's cause was hopeless and that he should ask for a negotiated peace. Washington's conduct in those hard times has provided the model for all Americans ever since, a moral, a model of moral stamina. Let's stop again and take a second to consider how huge this speech is. Do you think FDR didn't grasp the gravity and import of the moment? The President of the United States was addressing the American people about our status and goals in a world war. These are the biggest, most consequential speeches a president can give, and you bet the utmost care went into it. FDR was delivering a message into the enemy's listening. When a president is speaking to us about our enemies, he factors that in. That's what's happening in those moments, especially when they are as carefully prepared as FDR's fireside chats. Debating this is debating that the sky is up or the earth round. It is what it is. So, why did Roosevelt choose our first president, George Washington, to introduce and frame what he had to say in 1942 in the early months of World War II? As we study this decades later, beyond what may seem like informed speculation, there are clues in both the rest of the speech as well as with FDR's political history itself. And those two things are of one piece, a piece that was also formed by our original gangsters. First, Roosevelt knew that our enemies knew that he was a Tammany Hall Democrat. He knew that they knew what that meant in a broad way and quite likely in a very specific way about him. That Tammany Hall, the New York Democratic Party machine, was controlled by the mafia, was one of the worst kept secrets on the planet. Everyone knew this, even our allies and enemies all over the globe, because it was all over our press, especially in Roosevelt's era. While still governor of New York, FDR requested an investigation of corruption in New York City. This wasn't necessarily a warning sign to the mobsters behind Tammany Hall or anyone else who watched American politics closely. Those mobsters behind Tammany inherited their power from Arnold Rothstein, the kingpin that put FDR in the governor's office in the first place. And they were with Roosevelt at the 1932 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, when Roosevelt clinched the nomination for president from another Tammany guy, Al Smith, all at our mobster's direction. Once a politician was in office, corruption investigations were a regular offering to make a show for the public. More often than not, they ended up compromised. As we learned in our last episode, Thomas Dewey's investigation was an exception. And in 1930, the New York State Legislature formed an equally aggressive one, the Hofstadter Committee. The committee appointed Samuel Seabury, an anti-Tammany Democrat, prominent lawyer, and former judge, as legal counsel. 
and Seabury went full bore after the syndicate, specifically its grip on Tammany Hall. The headlines about this were not obtuse. All a foreign intelligence service had to do was read English to understand that Tammany Hall was owned and controlled by the mob. And that meant that the politicians who rose to public office out of Tammany Hall were also owned and controlled by the mob. The whole thing was a bright, shining beacon to which any foreign enemy could direct their spies and learn even more about the corruption that controlled American politics. That's the way things work. That bright, shining beacon was also coming out of our ports. Since the press had long been reporting on the ships used by booze pirates in Prohibition and the syndicate's control of those ships and ports and the names of that syndicate that were also the very same names that controlled Tammany Hall. This beacon for directing foreign spies was no brighter than in the moment that a woman working for the Coast Guard had been intercepting radio signals all along those ports, all along our shores, and decrypting them for the U.S. government. Especially when the press reported that that woman was Elizabeth Friedman, the godmother of cryptanalysis, who had decrypted all of the U.S. War Department's intercepts of Germany's coded communications during the First World War. Yeah, Hitler's boys in Abwehr knew all about Roosevelt, Tammany Hall, and the mob. They were perfectly capable of reading our newspapers. Please don't let your brain argue otherwise. So, our mafia-controlled docks and territories were swarming with their spies. But what does this have to do with FDR signaling to our enemies in subtext by launching his fireside on George Washington's birthday and using our first president as a moral model for all Americans during this moment of the Second World War? Well, Roosevelt spends a good part of the speech after sharing the rare patriotic grit of George Washington on the threat of propaganda. Ah, a clue. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. In the years after the Great War and leading up to World War II, Hitler's Nazi Party and Mussolini's fascists had been flooding us with propaganda. Mussolini's propaganda struck a nerve with the Italian-American immigrant community. They had come to America mostly impoverished, and having a strong man back in the homeland who fashioned himself as a spokesman for the working man, had a strong appeal. It would take an act from an unexpected patriot in the early months of 1942, after we'd entered the war, 
before the Italian-American community would come together in their resistance to Mussolini's fascism. Hitler's propaganda was aiming for a more complex target. German-Americans in the 1920s and 30s filled both the personal wealth and political spectrums, from liberal to moderate to conservative. Appealing to all three was on Hitler and Goebbels' agenda. To do so, they used the shared cultural history and events in American Germania, like singing festivals and German Day, to recruit the scope of German-Americans into their cause. But this was not all. The Nazi activism program in America was massive, highly organized, and remains largely uncovered or simply ignored as part of our own history. The Department of Justice estimated 8,000 German-American members of the Bund. But researchers since put that number closer to 100,000. And one source cites 250,000 German-Americans on a Nazi mailing list with relatives in the Third Reich. The German-American Bund activists had leaders, from official American Führers to First Amendment lawyers. There were meetings for adults, rallies for communities, and jam-packed summer camps for kids. There was an economic-based movement, activists who organized efforts to deny American Jews business and property, while pushing the enrichment of German-American businesses and products. There were pamphlets, newspapers, and flags. Policy-wise, as the Nazi party in Germany edged closer to war, Hitler's activists here tailored the propaganda towards American isolationism to keep America out of Europe's business. And along with this message, in the literature and at public events, came the Nazi party's flag, the swastika. The constitutional and often physical fight over displaying this hate symbol in America predates our entry into World War II. Nazis were effective in how they responded to any roadblocks they encountered with spreading their propaganda here, especially this evil symbol. They weaponized free speech to protect their hate. Then, found themselves unprotected when it was discovered where the funding was coming from. German nationals, not Americans, were behind events where the flag was flown or publications in which it was printed. We enacted a law to stop that. So, Hitler's activists devised a response to that and got American-born sympathizers and operatives to promote the swastika, thinking this would end the issue. And here's where we get to our gangsters. Meyer Lansky and Longies Wilman had zeroed in on the importance of propaganda to the Nazis and were determined to strip it from them. First, with fists. When the swastika was displayed at gatherings or in storefronts, Meyer and Longy sent their Minutemen, the Jewish boxers from their enforcement crews, led by retired champ Nat Arno. The swastika was their shining beacon for where and when to show up and attack the enemy. As for the broader Nazi activism, Meyer used political muscle with Congress to help pass the alien registration bill requiring German Bundists to register as foreign agents. They had succeeded in hitting the Nazis in their wallets with multiple neutrality acts, supported by FDR, which served as arms and shipping embargoes against Hitler's regime. At the state level, Meyer and Lange got the New Jersey legislature to enact an anti-Nazi law. That was the name of it anti-Nazi law, which made it illegal to appear in public in a military uniform similar to one of a foreign government. 
The Minutemen had been slugging away at these Nazi-uniformed swastika armbanded security forces at the Bund's meetings, festivals, and rallies. Nazis in uniform? On American soil? No. Meyer and Longy found a way to strip them of that shit, too. And the bigger aim of that law was to make it so the Nazis couldn't have their dress-up military and spy-training communities for children, masquerading as camps. The effects of Meyer and Longy's efforts were mostly working. Anti-Nazi sentiment was growing. The Bund was getting backlash. Still, with the First Amendment, the Bund had most of the law and constitutional protections on their side. But the legal war was exposing the political war, which was exposing the street war. And the whole thing was pissing the Nazis off, especially one of their activist lawyers named Otto Steifel. And Otto, ever the propagandist, helped devise a solution. Glue Adolf Hitler and George Washington together. Make George Washington the, quote, first fascist, end quote, and claim Hitler had done as much for New Germany as Washington had for America. That's a quote, too. Celebrate Washington as their own. That was the propaganda. It was both an effective workaround of any legal issues and an incredible recruitment device for anyone who fell for it, and there were thousands who did. Being a Nazi was now framed as patriotic. Problem solved. Along with the Bund's mass production of Washington as our fascist forefather posters and memorabilia, they began holding their big rallies on Washington's birthday. In fact, on Washington's birthday in 1939, three years before FDR intentionally chose the day for his most consequential address to the nation, the biggest Nazi rally in American history took place in Madison Square Garden. Over 20,000 American Nazis raised their straight arms in salute of George Washington, whose image loomed before them on giant banners. Fritz Kuhn, the German-American Bundesführer, spoke. Roosevelt was renamed Rosenfeld and denounced as, quote, being in the pocket of rich Jews. I promise you, the semiotics of holding that fireside chat on Washington's birthday and opening it with a reclaiming of George Washington as democracy's founding father, not fascism's, was carefully architected by Roosevelt himself. To do with words and ideas what Meyer Lansky's mentor and FDR's former benefactor, Arnold Rothstein, would have done if he were still alive with political muscle and fists. With that speech's opening salvo, FDR verbally punched Hitler, his generals, his spies, and his propagandists right in the fucking face. Washington's conduct in those hard times has provided the model for all Americans ever since. A moral, a model of moral stamina. He held to his course as it had been chartered in the Declaration of Independence. He and the brave men who served with him knew that no man's life or fortune was secure without freedom and free institutions. The present great struggle has taught us increasingly that freedom of person and security of property anywhere in the world depend upon the security of the rights and obligations of liberty and justice everywhere in the world. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. Someone else had a plan for surviving the war, and it involved a prosecutor? and politician who had his sights on becoming FDR's successor. It was a matter of life and death for me to make sure that Dewey got to Albany first, before he tried for the White House. I needed him in the state capitol, because as governor, he'd have the power to grant me a parole. In our last episode, we learned about the team of prosecutors that finally caught the other gangster, whose partnership with Meyer organized the underworld. Lucky Luciano. They nailed him on running the syndicate's prostitution racket in New York City. The prosecutors were working under special counsel Thomas Dewey, a man who terrified our syndicate's New York gangsters more than Elmer Irie. Dewey was relentlessly taking their proverbial scalps, and he would later run for governor of New York and ultimately President of the United States, off his record of successful gangland prosecutions. Dewey would achieve the first, being elected governor of New York in 1942, on the back of his conviction of Lucky Luciano. But there was actually another high-profile mafia conviction that sealed the deal for Dewey. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean an actual deal that Thomas Dewey made with the godfather himself, Lucky Luciano. While serving as district attorney, Thomas Dewey had an underboss of Lucky and Myers in his sights, Louis Lepke Buchalter, the former head of Murder, Inc. Dewey got him initially on violating federal antitrust laws in the rabbit skin and fur trade. You see, when Rothstein was whacked and the syndicate formed, formally dividing up all its business sectors, Lepke got the garment industry. It wasn't necessarily supposed to be only his for all time, but Lep was indeed running the whole thing at the time of his first conviction. And that's when Dewey filed charges against him for extortion, racketeering, and murder. And at the time in New York State, the latter came with the death penalty. Dewey had long wanted to get the syndicate's bosses on hard crimes, but murder convictions had proven elusive to him. Getting the king of Murder, Inc. on murder itself? would be the ultimate prize. A new wrinkle made that prize even more impossible to grab. In the weeks between his conviction and sentencing, Lepke Buchalter disappeared. The syndicate had been tipped to the scope of Dewey's plans, and Buchalter was a string no one wanted pulled. So, Tommy Lucchese, and attorney Moses Moe Polakoff made a day trip to the clink-up state in Danamora to consult the godfather, Luciano. The decision was made. Luciano ordered Lepke protected and had him stashed away while he was out on bail. And here is where this intersects with the next-level origins of America's modern intelligence services. 
There was another lawman who wanted Buchalter. Lepke, like all the syndicate's underbosses, had a piece of Rothstein's drug-running empire. And the feds, not the state, were after him for it, under the careful direction of J. Edgar Hoover. When Lepke disappeared, Hoover formed a unit to search for him, and it didn't have to stay within the boundaries of the United States. While many credit the CIA's predecessor to Wild Bill Donovan's OSS, formed for our efforts in World War II, it was actually J. Edgar Hoover who had the nation's first organized clandestine foreign intelligence service. The Special Intelligence Service, or SIS, was sanctioned by presidential order from Roosevelt to Hoover. FDR gave that order, believing that Hoover could run such an agency based on two prior events. The work that FBI counterintelligence had done taking down the Duquesne spy ring and the global manhunt that J. Eggers' men had conducted looking for Lepke Buchhalter. Domestically, Hoover was scouring every state where the syndicate had operations. But rumors were flying that Lepke was on the run internationally. Seemingly legitimate tips were pouring in to the FBI, prompting Hoover to send men to Poland, Cuba, Palestine, and the Far East on a wild rabbit hunt. This groundwork in foreign countries, especially Europe, where the World War was brewing, set the stage for Hoover's SIS operation. And when Hoover ended the search by personally delivering Lepke himself into FBI headquarters, beating Thomas Dewey to the punch, it was clear to Roosevelt that J. Edgar had a formidable force. So, how and where did Hoover find Lepke? Lucky Luciano had him personally delivered to the back of Hoover's curtained limousine. Buchalter wasn't hiding internationally. He was stashed exactly where Luciano ordered him to be, in Albert Anastasia's house at 101 Third Street in Brooklyn. Luciano wanted his freedom, and that meant he needed a state pardon. And the only one who could grant him that was the governor of New York. And he knew that Thomas Dewey wanted that job almost as much as Lucky wanted his freedom. Dewey had already tried and lost against Lehman in 1938, but he'd done well enough to either give it another shot or aim for something higher, the presidency, and Lucky couldn't have that. So, he hid Buchalter for nearly two years letting the clock tick closer to when Dewey would be in striking distance of launching another gubernatorial run. Then, drew his ace from the bottom of the deck. Lucky negotiated a deal with Hoover's agreement and help. Luciano sent word to J. Edgar that he would hand Buchalter over to him, giving Hoover the prized capture of the world's most wanted criminal. The feds would get their shot first at Lepke for heroin trafficking charges. Lucky would do this on the condition that Hoover agreed to turn Lepke over to Thomas Dewey when he was done with him. J. Edgar Hoover, of course, agreed to the terms. Dewey would take more work. From his cell in Danamora, Luciano had Frank Costello contact his best guy, in Dewey's office, letting him know that something was coming. Then, Lucky wrote a letter to Frank with an offer for Dewey and had Lansky deliver it to Frank Costello. There was no mistaking the semiotics here for the syndicate guys. The deal was coming from the two heads, the Italian capo di tutti capi and the Jewish chairman of the board. They were both ordering the end of the King of Murder, Inc. 
and it would be assassination by rule of law. Luciano's letter spelled out the deal for Dewey. He wanted Dewey to know that it was him, Lucky Luciano, from prison, who personally arranged for the apprehension of Dewey's main target, Lepke Buchalter, by the FBI, on the specific terms that J. Edgar would hand Lepke over to Dewey when he was done with him. And the letter went further. Luciano guaranteed Dewey a conviction. When Hoover turned Lepke over, it would be done on a silver platter with Luciano's compliments in the form of evidence. Lastly, the entire New York outfit would get behind Dewey's run for governor, as they had done for Roosevelt's successful gubernatorial run and his eventual ascent to the presidency. So they would do for Thomas Dewey. And whether it was expressed or not in that letter, the communication was clear. For this grand gift of Lepke's head and a governorship, a state pardon of Luciano was expected. Now, while not in Luciano's Last Testament, or in any other documentation that I could find, by the course of events that followed, one can assume that Thomas Dewey took that deal. And so, on the hot summer night of August 24, 1939, Albert Anastasia drove Louis Lepke Buchalter from 101 3rd Street in Brooklyn to 5th Avenue and 28th Street in Manhattan, where J. Edgar Hoover, waiting in the back of his curtain limousine, received the prized rabbit. Just under five years later, using the infamous old Sparky electric chair, New York State executed Louis Lefke Buchalter by the rule of law. In early 1942, in the weeks between the attack on Pearl Harbor and Roosevelt's fireside chat on George Washington's birthday, Lucky Luciano sat in his prison cell, contemplating the chessboard to freedom in his mind. As brilliant as his deal with Hoover and Dewey was in concept, Lucky had a bad taste in his mouth about being double-crossed by politicians. He'd put 80 of them in power over the course of his career, but one soured on his tongue like no other. It had to do with that Hofstetter committee I mentioned before. Back in 1932, Luciano negotiated one of his deals to make sure that committee went away, specifically that Judge Seabury, the chief legal counsel, was stopped. That deal was struck at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, and it was with FDR. Luciano threw Tammany's delegates behind Roosevelt in exchange, he thought, for shutting down Judge Seabury and the committee. Roosevelt agreed, got the Tammany delegates and the nomination, and eventually won the election. Then, he fucked Luciano and tripled down with the committee in his last days as governor, giving Seabury, not the syndicate, his full support. Naturally, Roosevelt had been a prick all along, but I gotta give him credit for one thing. He was really smooth. As I look back on it, he'd done exactly what I would have done in the same position, and he was no different than me. I had Masseria and Maranzano knocked off to get to the top. What I did was illegal. I broke the law. Roosevelt had us sent to the can or squashed. What he did was legal, but the pattern of it was exactly the same. We was both shit-ass double-crossers, no matter how you look at it. I always knew that politicians was crooked, that you could buy them anytime you wanted and you couldn't trust them around the corner. But I didn't think it was the same with a guy who was gonna be president. 
I never knew that a guy who was going to be president would stick a knife in your back when you wasn't looking. I never knew his word was no better than lots of racket guys. But I guess nobody should become president of the United States on the back of a gangster. It could all happen again with Thomas Dewey. Lucky needed a masterstroke move in order to guarantee his pardon. When he came up with it, he consulted the only person he trusted more than his attorney, Mog Polikoff. I had a newspaper with me, and I showed how the Navy Department was giving out a lot of stories about sabotage and fifth column and that kind of thing. There was even a story on the front page about a campaign they called Zip Your Lip, which shows how worried they was about German subs sinking our ships or some spies blowing up ships in the harbor. It looked like the whole eastern waterfront, especially in New York, was a mess of sabotage. I could see Lansky smiling at me when I was laying it out. He said, Charlie, I get it. I get it. It's terrific. How can Dewey turn down a patriotic hero? The paper Lucky was showing Lansky likely covered a huge act of sabotage on New York City's waterfront. On January 9th, 1942, fires destroyed Municipal Pier 83 and a score of buildings along the Hudson River. U.S. defense agencies leapt into action. A lieutenant commander named Charles Haffenden was put in charge of the 3rd Naval District's investigation section and set up shop in downtown Manhattan. Haffenden made it known that he would talk to anybody, a priest, a bank manager, a gangster, and the devil himself. That's a quote to get the information he needed. Using operatives the Navy and FBI already had planted down at the waterfront who helped bust the spy rings, U.S. military intelligence was going full force after fifth-column saboteurs. After all, this was war. I don't mean to fly by that phrase, fifth-column. You may have caught it in Roosevelt's speech as well at the top of this episode in his George Washington Open. Like evoking Washington's name and having the speech on Washington's birthday, the phrase fifth column was another form of dual messaging, one message to us Americans and one to our enemies at war. Luciano used it because everyone was reading it in the papers around reports of enemy sabotage along our eastern shorefront. Especially in Haffenden's 3rd Naval District, the district that included the waterfronts of New York and New Jersey. If you don't know the phrase, fifth column, it means a, quote, clandestine group of subversive agents who attempt to undermine a nation's solidarity by any means at their disposal. A fifth column's mission is to undertake acts of sabotage, cause fear and confusion, and eventually assist an enemy invasion. And the newspaper story from which Luciano conjured his masterstroke chess move for freedom? The fifth column in that meant the Nazi and Axis spies who were sabotaging our ports. You remember the ports that were controlled by the men who had the ships that delivered an ocean of booze during Prohibition? Lucky Luciano didn't need the paper to know what was happening in the 3rd Naval District. That was his territory. Those were his docks, piers, and buildings. They were all his men, from the longshoremen to the ferry captains. He controlled it all. And from the 3rd Naval District's headquarters at 50 Church Street to the water beyond the boardwalks, Haffenden's investigations were taking place inside a world that Luciano owned. Whether Commander Haffenden realized it or not, Lucky knew his every move. After consulting with Lansky, Lucky gave the order to Albert Anastasia. And a month later, the radio blared with the news of his checkmate. On February 9th, 
at 2.30 p.m., the U.S. Normandy caught fire at Pier 88 on the Hudson River. I heard on the radio where the Normandy was on fire. Didn't look like they could save her. That goddamn Anastasia, he really done a job. Later on, Albert told me not to feel too bad about what happened to the ship. He said that as a sergeant in the army, he hated the fucking Navy anyway. To grasp how incredible this chess move truly was, we gotta go back to the case that put Luciano away and the woman on Thomas Dewey's team who cracked the city's entire prostitution racket, Eunice Carter. Once Eunice had pieced together the syndicate's prostitution operation and pegged Lucky Luciano as its kingpin, she didn't immediately take her findings to Dewey. As the only woman on Dewey's team, and a black woman at that, she knew she needed some backup if she was going to get the big guy to take her theory seriously. So, she turned to another member of the team, Murray Gerfing. If you recognize his name, it might be from a moment three decades later after he helped put Luciano away with a case that came before him during his first week as a federal circuit judge in the Southern District of New York. The Pentagon Papers. In which Judge Gerfine refused the government's motion under Nixon's AG to enjoin the papers. He wrote, Quote, the security of the nation is not at the ramparts alone. Security also lies in the value of our free institutions, a cantankerous press, an obstinate press, an ubiquitous press must be suffered by those in authority in order to preserve the even greater values of freedom of expression and the right of the people to know. Isn't that great? Or maybe you recognize Murray Gerfine from his contributions and dedication to Jewish American causes, like serving as president of Hyas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Or if you're a student of the Nuremberg Trials, you'd recognize his name as an assistant to the U.S. State's chief counsel in 1945. Because of Murray Gerfing's combined later accomplishments, if you study the CIA's predecessor, the OSS, his name may have popped up as a notable officer during World War II, when he went from lieutenant colonel in the Army to chief of the Psychological Warfare Division at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force in Normandy. But if you're me, you're staring at his name in two of the many books that I've used as reference materials for this season. Invisible by Stephen Carter, about his grandmother's work for Thomas Dewey, and Mafia Allies by Tim Newark. Six years after Murray Gerfine was wise enough to listen to Eunice Carter's theory on the syndicate's prostitution racket and make sure Thomas Dewey had everything he needed to nail the biggest gangster in the world, Commander Haffenden sent Captain Roscoe C. McFall, Chief Intelligence Officer of the ONI's 3rd Naval District, to knock on Murray Gerfine's door. The U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence needed Murray Gerfine's help turning that gangster, Lucky Luciano, into a spy. As far as Haffenden was concerned, he didn't know nothing that was going on, except that he was sitting there with his mouth open, praying I would say yes and help his whole department. With Meyer Lansky at his side, Lucky Luciano held a sit-down with Commander Haffenden, Murray Gerfine, and Attorney Mo Polikoff. The offer from ONI was simple. Help us root out fifth-column saboteurs, and we'll make sure that help does not go unappreciated or unknown. Haffenden knew Luciano was the word of God among the civilian population in his district, especially with the workforce supporting the war effort. 
it had all fallen into place, just as Luciano had planned. This was the beginning of Operation Underworld. There would be more help that Luciano and Lansky would offer O&I during the war and perhaps beyond. But Lucky's first act was the most profound. For its effects rolled back the Italian-American sentiment for Mussolini, cutting that fascist propaganda legs out from under him, and rolled into an actual battle campaign named Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily, which initiated the Italian campaign and toppled Mussolini. Operation Underworld consisted of this. Lucky sent word through Lansky, Costello, and Anastasia to everyone in the 3rd District. Between the tellings of Meyer Lansky, the Last Testament of Luciano, and some reporting out of a still partly classified Airlines report, here is what was said to the community on our shorefronts and in our cities. You will help Commander Hathaden, the Navy, and any other U.S. agency in the war effort. You will not be paid for this, and you will not ask for money. You will do this for your country. To Hathaden, Luciano gave this commitment. There will be no German submarines in the port of New York. Every man down there who works in the harbor, all the sailors, all the fishermen, every longshoreman, every individual who has anything to do with the coming and going with ships in the United States is now helping in the fight against the Nazis. It would take the end of the war to bring Luciano the prize for his chessboard, his freedom. But he got it because of that deal. A crime boss used national security as a bargaining chip and won. Once that happened, the game was changed forever. A new creature of the underworld was born, and he should frighten you to the core. Luciano was no longer just a mobster, and although he was helping U.S. intelligence, he was no rat. He was a dealmaker. The godfather of the American Mafia was the one who made the deal to become the first mobster spy. It's a revelatory moment for any criminal in the underworld. As long as they have information to sell on national security, if it's big enough, they are above the law, untouchable. Luciano crossed the ultimate Rubicon. The fox was in the most sacred henhouse, our intelligence community. Commander Haffenden and Murray Gerfine even dressed him up as a patriot to let him in, convincing the hens that this fucked up rooster was the one to trust. I get that it was war, this was necessary, and it did profoundly help the good guys win. You see, those men, many of whom were Italian-Americans, who got the order from God, from their Godfather, to help the United States fight our enemy? Well, Luciano's order may have been transactional for him, but it was aspirational for them. They understood a calling higher than money. Hell, even Lansky and Longy's efforts fighting America's Nazis wasn't purely patriotic. Jewish businesses were being severely hurt by the Bund. That was their money, too. This is the difference between our two worlds, between the world beneath us and the realm of the light. Our ultimate treasure is different. We 
can grab onto something higher than money or self-preservation. Perhaps this truth is at the root of why Lucky Luciano never understood Roosevelt. He couldn't see that FDR would never sell his soul to a gangster. And for that, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt gets the last word. But speaking for the United States of America, let me say once and for all, to the people of the world, we Americans have been compelled to yield ground, but we will regain it. We are daily increasing our strength. Soon, we and not our enemies will have the offensive. We, not they, will win the final battles. And we, not they, will make the final peace. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.